Welcome back to the Religions of the Ancient Mediterranean podcast. My name is Phil Harlan. I'm a prof at York. This is the series, The Historical Jesus in Context. So far, we've been dealing a lot with context and placing Jesus within Galilee and Judea. And we continue that now, but we're beginning to get into things that will allow us to say more about Jesus specifically and the roles he was perceived to take within the society in which he was active, including roles like the role of teacher. In this episode, we investigate educated groups contemporary with Jesus in order to get a better idea of what's going on within Judea and about some of the disagreements that exist among different Judeans and different educated Judean groups contemporary with Jesus. This will begin to provide a context for Jesus because we're looking at figures like the Sadducees, the Pharisees, and especially in this episode, the Essenes and the Dead Sea sect specifically. This provides a groundwork for beginning to discuss Jesus as a teacher. It also sets up our discussion of Jesus as a student of John the Baptist in the following episode. Further on in this series of the podcast, we'll also be investigating not only educated groups and putting Jesus within the context of educated groups, but also popular movements. We can understand Jesus and the emergence of the Jesus movement within the context of popular movements, and that will be an important component later on. So I hope you enjoy this episode and return again. So far in our discussion of the historical Jesus, we've got a couple highly probable things to work with. One is that Jesus was executed under Pontius Pilate. That is established by sources both Christian and non-Christian and Roman and Jewish. That, we pointed out, is the most secure thing we can say using historical methods is that that is a highly probable event. Another thing we've alluded to that we're going to get into that's highly probable is that Jesus was baptized, immersed, by John the Baptizer. And that has corollaries for what we can say about the historical Jesus. So those two things so far we've touched on are the most highly probable things about Jesus. Using historical methods to study this peasant, everything else we say is going to be less probable than those two things. Remember that history never deals with certainties. It's always degrees of probability. Something that is highly likely in those less secure items about the historical Jesus using historical methods. Something that we're going to talk about extensively in the following episodes is that you can, as a historian, describe Jesus as a teacher. In the process of talking about Jesus as a teacher, I want to place him within the context of contemporary educated groups and contemporary rabbis that will give us a way of at least placing Jesus as a teacher within this first century context. So that's my point that we're going to get into today. Let me say a few words now about contemporary educated groups and what we do and do not know about them. Our sources for Pharisees, Sadducees, Essenes are Josephus on the one hand, a late first century Judean author who lives in Rome and writes, and the Gospels and other early Christian literature. Our evidence for first century Pharisees, first century Sadducees, first century Essenes, limited to those things. Limited to the Christian literature and Josephus. We've basically got nothing else. 
We'll soon see that for a group that may be a group of Essenes, we do have the scrolls that were found in the caves on the edge of the Dead Sea near Qumran. The very first time we ever hear the word Pharisee in literature, chronologically, guess where? The first chronological appearance of the word Pharisee is in Paul, where he's talking about the fact that he's a Pharisee. So our sources are difficult here, just as our sources for getting at the Jewish peasant Jesus are. Our sources for getting at contemporary educated groups are pretty problematic too. One clear exception of where we can start to understand an educated group in their own words, and that is the Dead Sea sect, where we have what seems to have been a community that formed and moved out into the desert, and that we have their writings. We have what they said, not what someone else said about them. We have what they said. When it comes to the Pharisees in the first century, we not, don't have a single thing they said. Although we may have plenty of writings by them, they didn't identify themselves as a Pharisee. So we have no way of saying, this author's a Pharisee. Here's what the Pharisaic perspective is. We have no evidence for that in the first century. The Dead Sea sect is an example of an educated group that we do have them speaking for themselves. So I'm going to delve into them most. But let me say a quick few words about the other ones about which we don't know much at all. The Sadducees, what we can know with a high level of likelihood is that they are primarily aristocracy and primarily priestly, and they are the upper classes primarily in Jerusalem. The other one thing we know about them, with some degree of likelihood, is that they didn't believe in an afterlife. If you had in your mind that, okay, let's find out what the Sadducees believe, let's figure out their whole worldview, all you've got is one item, basically, for the first century. But when you look at Israelite religion, back in the time of the tribes of Israel, in the Hebrew Bible, there is no clear idea of an afterlife. Sheol is the term that's used for the grave. You go to the grave. There's no talk of an afterlife. What I'm really trying to say is Sadducees are a little more conservative. They've conserved earlier traditions within Israelite religion, is a way of putting it. Including the fact that you don't come this whole talk of an afterlife and resurrection and all that. It's not in the Hebrew Bible. Is maybe how they would look at it. Let's stick to what the Torah says and not start adding other stuff. Maybe what they would say. But then there's the issue of how to interpret what's in the Torah and all that, right? That allows other people to uh, have different uh, views on these things. Where do we get that uh, likely piece, piece of information about them? Well, from the Gospels, where Jesus is debating with the Sadducee, and the Sadducees are trying to question Jesus' belief in an afterlife. And we get it from Josephus, who likewise refers to that same item. So we have more than one source saying that Sadducees do not believe in an afterlife, or a resurrection, as another way of putting it. Pharisees, we know a little bit more, but not much more. Again, we don't have any writings by them. What we do know is how they contrast the Sadducees on the issue of an afterlife. They do believe in an afterlife. That's, we know the Pharisees believe in an afterlife and the Sadducees don't. That's sort of the most solid thing we know in, com in the comparison between those two groups. Other things we know is that Josephus and the Gospels, our primary two sources for these figures, and even Paul hints at this, suggest that the Pharisees are concerned with following the Torah in an everyday way with following the Judean law in an everyday way. That the Judean law is not just for the priests in the temple, is the way of putting it. The Judean law is something that you should strive to live out in some way in your everyday life. They seem to have applied that primarily to things like eating practices. 
that your eating practices should be in accordance with the Torah in some way and with issues of purity. So purity is what's on their mind here. Another thing we get from Josephus in the Gospels, and it's difficult to measure and figure out, is that both claim that the Pharisees have popular respect, that the people follow the Pharisees, that the people think that they're worthwhile listening to, and that average Judeans or Galileans might actually take on what the Pharisees suggest. This is hinted at in both Josephus and the Gospels. But generally speaking, those two sources, the Gospels and Josephus, also characterize the Pharisees as being concerned with following the Torah carefully. Carefully following the Torah. And then that's how the Gospels portray Jesus coming into differences of opinion with the Pharisees, is over how to interpret the Torah and how to apply it. Jesus is portrayed, not dealing with historical Jesus right now, I'm just saying, in the Gospels, Jesus is portrayed as being more lenient in some respects, in some of the sources, than the Pharisees are. And the Pharisees perceiving Jesus as too lenient. The Gospels give an idea of the Pharisees as strict. Other evidence that we're going to talk about now give the suggestion that other Judeans might say, no, the Pharisees are actually too lenient. They're not too strict. We're the ones that got it right. We know what purity is. Essenes are also talked about by Josephus. There's a debate as to whether or not the Dead Sea sect is or is not a group of Essenes. The majority view is that they are Essenes. Some people think that they are Sadducees. Others just think that we don't know. But regardless of which option you pick on what kind of group they are, we know more about them than some other groups. Because we have their writings. We have the writings they used and we have the writings they produced. And I want to say a few words about the Dead Sea sect for this purpose. There's no direct relationship between the Jesus movement and Jesus and the Dead Sea Scrolls. That is not at all what I'm going to be proposing. There's no direct relation between them. However, if you look at them analogously, if you look at them as two Judean movements within approximate contemporary times, you can start to compare them and see, oh, there are some similarities between the concerns of the Dead Sea sect and the concerns of Jesus and the Jesus movement. So that's the degree to which there's a connection. They're useful for the scholar to know about because they provide context for what some other educated people are doing contemporary with Jesus. For another movement that arises a couple centuries before Jesus, let me say a few words about them, and it's going to be brief. You can have a whole course on Dead Sea Scrolls, or multiple courses on it. But what I'm going to sketch out for you is some things I want to highlight about the Dead Sea sect. The Dead Sea sect seems to have formed based on contentions between different groups in Jerusalem. This is a period of the Hasmoneans we're dealing with here in the 2nd century BCE, probably around the 160s or so BCE, 170s BCE you have certain opinions arising among some priests. And other priests in the temple have a different view of things. And the high priest is the Hasmonean, the Maccabean guy. There's uh, differences of opinion about how the temple should be run, about what purity is, and about how to maintain the purity of the temple. Not only that, there seems to have been debates about calendar. Which calendar do we use to calculate when the festivals, the holy days that God has outlined in the Torah, how do we calculate when they should be celebrated? These key issues, purity and levels of purity, the festival celebrations based on calendar, and how the temple should be run, and what, what priesthood should be in charge, seem to have led to the emergence of the Dead Sea sect. 
let me read from the Damascus document, one of the writings that were found among the Dead Sea Scrolls, where the author of this document is actually talking about the origins of this group. So we have them talking about it, even though they use a lot of flowery language, we can nonetheless get a bit of a picture of this. When God remembered the covenant of the very first, he saved a remnant for Israel and did not deliver them up to destruction. And at the moment of wrath, 390 years after having delivered them up into the hands of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, they're actually giving numbers here, whether or not they're accurate, it's hard to know, but this would place the origins of this movement around 200 BCE, if those numbers are somewhat accurate, 390 years after the king of Babylon taking Jerusalem. God visited them and caused to sprout from Israel and from Aaron a shoot of the planting in order to possess his land and to become fat with the good things of his soil. And they, so he's already talking about a group of people that are forming in around 200 BCE, and they realized their sin and knew that they were guilty men. But they were like blind persons and like those who groped for a path over 20 years. So the way they're talking about it is, a movement is emerging that's penitential, that's saying you need to repent, that Israel has not been living properly, that Israel needs to change its ways. And then there's a 20-year period, they say, where this penitential movement that realizes that, they, they, that, they're not been, that Israel has not been living properly and are now trying to live properly, for 20 years they're not sure what to do next. And God appraised their deeds because they sought him with a perfect heart, and raised up for them a teacher of righteousness in order to direct them in the path of his heart. When you read through the rest of the Dead Sea Scrolls, you start to learn more about this teacher of righteousness. Basically, the teacher of righteousness is the main figure for this whole movement that seems to have been central in the move of this penitential repentance-type movement, the move to the Dead Sea. They came to the point where they felt that they were the remnant of Israel. They were the ones that had repented properly. The rest of Israel was not repenting properly. They were the ones that were going to live properly and purely. They needed to leave society and live as a sect, separated from society, in order to do what God wanted them to do. The teacher of righteousness is the central figure who then starts to lead this penitential movement, this repentance-focused movement. He seems to have taught apocalyptic ideas. But there are two things I wanted to mention before I get into the apocalyptic worldview that gives us somewhat of context for Jesus and the Jesus movement to some degree. And that is the relationship between this newly formed movement headed by the teacher of righteousness and other groups within Judean culture at the time. There were antagonistic relationships between this group and other Judeans. I'm using this as an illustration of something that's standard in the first century Judaism. Namely, that groups do not always get along. There's disagreements. Just because one group disagrees with another does not mean that one is Jewish and one is not, does it? We're talking about inner debates within Judean culture. And that's where the Jesus movement fits too, in its origins. But the point now is I want to illustrate the problems this group was having. First of all, this group thought of the Hasmonean dynasty as running the temple wrong. What they thought was wrong about it was who was being established as the high priest. The teacher of righteousness and his following believed that the priesthood should be led by someone of Zadokite descendancy. Zadok was a priest way back in the time of King David. Priests should be established based on descendancy from that particular line. The current priesthood in, in Jerusalem is chosen by the Hasmonean dynasty. 
by the Hasmonean kings. Eventually, during the time of the existence of this group, the Hasmonean king actually becomes the high priest as well. He's both the high priest and the king. This is totally the wrong way to run things in the view of the teacher of righteousness and the Dead Sea sect. They feel that the temple is being run in the wrong way and that they can't even handle being anywhere near it anymore, even though the teacher of righteousness himself is probably a priest. And others who join the group are probably priests. They say, forget this. This is contaminated. We've got to leave the current contaminated, improperly run temple and go out into the desert. So that's their view of the Hasmonean group. There's evidence that perhaps even a Hasmonean king had tried to kill the teacher of righteousness because of these contentions. Another group that comes up in the Dead Sea Scrolls in an obscure way are the lovers of smooth things. Who do you think the lovers of smooth things are? The Pharisees. So the Dead Sea sect, led by the teacher of righteousness, felt that they were the strict ones that lived properly according to purity concerns. They may have even heightened their purity concerns more than other priests at the time. And they also didn't like the Pharisees. The Pharisees are too lenient. They love to smooth off the rough edges of things. They're real smooth interpreters. They have their smooth moves in getting around the laws. This is how the Dead Sea sect, a Judean group, viewed this other Judean educated group, the Pharisees. So you can pretty well expect disagreements among Judean groups. It doesn't tell you that you're no longer working with Judaism, does it? It's differences of interpretation on various issues. Before we turn to that important issue of how the Dead Sea sect, a Judean group, viewed other educated Judean groups like the Hasmoneans, like the Pharisees, I was about to speak about the importance of the apocalyptic worldview for understanding the teacher of righteousness's teachings, and therefore how the Dead Sea sect was an apocalyptic sect, along with their teacher being an apocalyptic thinker. He seems to have taught apocalyptic ideas. He was one of those apocalyptic Judeans that we've mentioned in the past. Remember that not all Judeans within Judean culture are apocalyptic. Remember how we explained the apocalyptic worldview? Let me quickly summarize what it is. An apocalyptic thinker thinks like this. We're living in an evil age dominated by evil powers. God has a plan to bring to an end the evil powers that are dominating this age. That end is going to come any moment, and God is going to intervene in a massive way to wipe out that evil power and establish God's power in a fundamental way that will establish a kingdom or, a, or an existence that is for the righteous forever. That's the apocalyptic worldview, very quickly summarized. Sometimes a Messiah is plugged into it. Sometimes a prophet plays a role in it. There's different ways of putting it together. But that's the simple way of outlining for you that apocalyptic worldview. Not all Judeans believe that. The Dead Sea sect did. The teacher of righteousness did. When we look through the rest of the Dead Sea Scrolls, we start to see more evidence of that apocalyptic worldview. They differed from some other educated Judean groups in feeling that the end of the world was imminent, that the teacher of righteousness had some insight directly from God about the imminence of the end, and that they had to prepare. It seems that they literally felt they had to prepare to help fight the battle that God was going to fight against the forces of evil, including the forces of evil that were running the current temple. Other Judeans are included among the people on the side of Satan in the view of the Dead Sea sect. God was going to soon intervene, wipe out evil, including the people who are running the temple poorly, and set up a pure and perfect temple where the Zadokite priesthood would be reestablished and where the Dead Sea sect, obviously, would be central to this new purified temple 
and a perfect kingdom that God would establish. Something to highlight is some of the writings in the Dead Sea writings show that this group also expected anointed ones. And I deliberately see ones. Some of the authors of the Dead Sea writings expected more than one anointed one. They expected a priestly anointed one, and they expected a kingly anointed one. Kingly Messiah and a priestly Messiah. And they felt that these two messiahs were imminently going to appear to help bring about the final intervention of God and wipe out the evil and, and get rid of the impure temple and set up a pure, perfect temple again. Note this. This Judean group looks negatively at the temple. They look forward to the proper temple being reestablished, a pure temple. So you can have negative views, apparent negative views about a temple and still be a strongly part of Judean culture in this period. Maybe that gives you some insights into a context for Jesus. We'll soon see that it's likely that the historical Jesus had some things to say about the temple and that he may have engaged in important actions that are directly related to ultimately his execution. Let's comment about this final thing about the other educated groups that we've been talking about. What the variety of educated groups contemporary with Jesus show us, including the Dead Sea sect, is precisely this range of possibilities among Judeans in the first century and Galileans on what emphasis to put on different things, on how to interpret the Judean Torah, the law, on how to apply it to your everyday life. These are issues of debate among different Judeans who are all part of Judean culture, but nonetheless differ in how they think it should be lived out. They have differences of opinion on the temple and its leadership. Also, you have differences of opinion that are reflected in these different educated groups about what God's plans are. A Sadducee who has some influence in the current temple may not think that God's plan is to come, wipe out evil, and set up a new temple. So there's all kinds of things going among these educated groups. They provide some context for understanding the variety within which Jesus fits. The difficulty is pinpointing where precisely he fits. That concludes this episode. I hope you'll come again. In the meantime, you can browse my website at philipharlan.com. I like early Christianity. The opening music of this series in the podcast is Paradise Lost by Namgyal Lamo, a Tibetan artist. You can find her on the web and you can buy her CDs at Amazon.